Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Boss Builder Podcast. This is a podcast for you if you're the brand new supervisor, the supervisor who's in the role and struggling, or even those of you who are thinking about making that transition. We offer a wide range of guests on our podcast, and today is a very unique guest. We have a guest, his name is Tom Coyle. Tom Coyle is a former Army officer, he's a historian. He actually talks about leadership lessons from battles from long ago, primarily the Civil War. Tom is the author of Leadership Lessons from the Battle of Gettysburg, so we're going to talk to him about that. We're going to get him to tell us some stories. We're going to find out if the lessons learned hundreds of years ago are relevant today for you, the boss. So let's quit talking about him. Let's talk to him. Sally, take it away. Welcome to the Boss Builder Podcast. Tom Coyle, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Mac. Really appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm really glad we did this too. Uh, I met you a few years ago through a mutual friend of ours, Carl Savino, and it was at one of the, uh, I think it was one of the Service Academy alumni events, and got to know you. I got a copy of your book, read your book. It was fascinating, and so as I was thinking about guests for the show, uh, this is one that I've been real excited for. So, Tom, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. I want to hear your story. You, we, we were chatting beforehand, and I found out something about you I didn't know. So tell us about yourself and what you do. Well, thanks, Mac. And, and you know, it's funny. When people ask me, what do I do, it's always an interesting question because a lot of that has to do with what do I happen to be doing at the time? So um, let me start with a very simple from the LinkedIn approach. Let's start with that. I was a West Point graduate, graduated in 1997, uh, became an artillery officer, uh, served seven years in the army. Then I um, served. Uh, then went to uh, Northrop Grumman for a bit before uh, joining the State Department in the Foreign Service, and then serving overseas on uh, a couple assignments abroad. And then you know, then coming back to Washington and uh, you know, working here. And in fact, it was actually coming back to Washington where I helped set up some internal leadership training and that type of thing, which then led to me uh, coming up with my idea of invention and leadership and. The book you mentioned, Leadership Lessons in the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, this was so, I was interested in writing a book of leadership based on you know great battle captains, history, that type of thing. And then um, with 2013, it was 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to get something out for that? And I went to my old notes as um, from my uh, when I was in, when I was in a lieutenant, I was asked to put together the staff ride. And the first time I went on a staff ride, and for those of you who don't know, a staff ride military is the term we. All the officers get together, go to a battlefield and study the, some of the decisions of the battle and that kind of thing. So the first time we did this, uh, when I joined the unit, uh, we were led by a major who was a big Civil War buff and got really into the weeds of things that I don't think were relevant, like the for what formation the soldiers were in and all this kind of stuff that was not relevant to modern tactics. So when I was then assigned to lead one a couple years later, I wanted to think, well, what is something that I can relate to. So I, I focus on leadership dilemmas people faced. And one key example, you know, Robert E. Lee on the third day of battle, he comes in, he goes, Hey, I got this new plan, Pickett's charge and Longstreet. He's like, 
oh my God, this is a suicide mission. So framing it of here's the boss having a bad idea. How do you deal with that situation? And, you know, having some discussions about that, then flip it around. You're the boss and your most trusted advisor saying, oh my God, this is a bad idea. And so I wanted to frame these battlefield lessons in these types of things, these everyday challenges people face. And so I'm using the, the book was like using the power of story to convey some key lessons. And while it covers most of the battle, it's not really a history book per se. It just uses history as the backdrop to frame the dilemma for that leader to kind of go through a thought process of what the dilemma was, think about what they might do. And then I also do that in those discussions. And then now going back to what I do is I just had various interests that I found ways of pursuing. So I was in the army. Um, I started playing drums. I was eight years old and I was in the army uh, through some dumb luck. Got together with a band in Nashville. Uh, we actually had um, uh, a contract opportunity with Sony Records. And then uh, uh, by the time we got done the album, they're like, yeah, no, rock and roll's dead. Boy bands, that's what's hot. And so that's it. So we all went our separate ways. And fast, you know, I still played with music and you know, the band kind of broke up. And our principal songwriter, uh, he himself, Mark Aaron James, he became a um, very well-known musician in terms of singer-songwriter circles and doing well in that. And, and so there, he had this song he wrote that had a cult following at the White, within the White House staff. So December 2012, he got invited to play at the White House, brought the original band back together. So it's like, yes, I, I've made it. If I've done nothing else in life, being able to play at a place like the White House, that's pretty cool. And let's be clear, this was not a boy band you were in, right? No, no, exactly. We, we, they wanted us to do the boy band thing. Yeah, no, that, that's yeah, not I think a, right a man now. band would be a little more appropriate, right? Well, and even as a diplomat, I, uh, I was like, you no, know, I've always, music's always been a big part of my life. And, and so I actually got to really relate to the culture. And it, like in, in Bosnia, I was playing drums with this guy named Elvis G. Kurtovich. And in the last days of communism, Yugoslavia had this, this band in the 80s, this, this movement called the New Primitives. And these were these songwriters pushing for change and that type of thing. And Elvis G. Kurtovich, like so many diplomats who'd been to Bosnia, they don't know who he is. And yet you talk to a Bosniak, uh, this is like their John Lennon. Wow. Type of there. It's like John Lennon, Elvis Presley rolled in the one. And it was kind of funny because like they had a serial film festival every year. And I'm, I'm walking by there and Elvis – is getting interviewed by the local press and he waves to me. I go up there, shake his hand while he's on camera. Pretty soon the press, who's this guy? Like, oh yeah, I'm his drummer. I do this kind of thing. And I said, really? So you came all the way to play? Well, I, I do some work at the embassy on the side, but yeah, that, that's what I'm doing. And so I had a, a good laugh at that. And it, it's just, I really got to understand the culture and really got some great insight into places I was working in just from music and that type of thing. And just understanding people, building trust, that type of thing. And, and, I've always pursued interests. I actually uh, was in an art show um, last spring for my drone photography. Um, I've done CGI graphics. And actually, just uh, <laughs> first week of December, I was in the Amazon Deep Racer competition. I actually made the leaderboard in the open competition, not the uh, international competition, but this open competition at the conference. And you had to do some machine a machine learning program so that you could, you're, you're car had to teach itself how to drive around a track and i got a couple good laps around the track i have some early hiccups and like oh my god i, I did that that was kind of cool and so um a lot of my thing is out there is i i do a lot of it just because a i think life is short and it's good to experience things and i got to meet a guy named dj saul when i was out in vegas and dj saul is actually um the the ceo of goldman sachs um and he, he got outed um, in the New York Times where they made him CEO of Goldman Sachs. And the board got together with him and said, hey, you, know, you need to stop being a DJ. This doesn't look good. And he's like, well, what the heck? You wouldn't tell me stop playing golf 
I mean, people play golf, they love that. So, so he's like, no, I'm still being a DJ. So he still does his DJ work, donates his things to, to uh, his profits and DJ work to charity. And he's done shows in Vegas and New York and playing all these places as a DJ. And I thought, this is kind of cool. And you look at these, I think so many times when like uh, the corporate world, we try to create that, that, that t- take that creativity out of people. I think doing these things broadens your creativity. You meet different people when you have these different interests. Like when I'm doing art show stuff, I meet a certain type of people. I meet artists. I meet all kinds of people. And what's really interesting is they have different perspectives. You understand things. And in fact, one of that that's one of the reasons, and uh, take us in a different digression here, uh, is my Facebook memories this year, uh, August 25th, 2015, I posted that, hey, you heard it here first, Donald Trump's going to win the electoral vote by, but lose the popular vote by 2 million votes. I kind of did a simple Python thing to kind of look at some social media stuff. And it was part of like, you know, understanding where people were and like, yeah, like the people in the Midwest where I'm from and understanding why they found Trump appealing. And it's interesting enough in terms of the data I collected, they didn't care about immigration. They were caring about trade deals with China and trade deals with Mexico, which was what they blame, whether their views are incorrect or correct. Their perception is those, these bad trade deals have been the things hurting their livelihood. And so Trump's the guy who's addressing that. So that was their, so all the other stuff was not of consequence. This is why they voted for him and understanding that and seeing that. And then, you know, and then sending targeting surveys and being open-minded to people's different perspectives, all these things I learned as a diplomat and hanging around different people you get to sit there and just not be dismissive sometimes we get in our thing when you hang around the same types of people all the time you kind of get your own culture your own bubble and for me the the beauty of all this is how in my entire life all this stuff that i've done and how it's all related back to my work um i've gotten awards in the military and and as a diplomat for my creative way of solving problems that people always talk about and a lot of that is just doing different things um, hanging out with different people, getting different perspectives. And um, I'll leave this point, this one story. Uh, it was summer of 1998. And, you know, I was in the 101st Airborne Division, one of the most elite conventional units in the military. If you were to mention Osama bin Laden in military circles, like it, it wasn't really much of a mention. Um, yet me, my musician advice, hey, what are we doing with this bin Laden? What are you military guys doing with this bin Laden guy? He sounds like he's really, he's going to be like a, like a really big deal. So here are some people who have nothing to do with national security. They're like, hey, this guy's kind of a big deal. And here we were. And, and back in those days, 1998, our focus was every exercise was tailored toward what if a second Korean war breaks out or if we go to war with Iraq again. That's the, the only things we seem to focus in, in on. And so, again, the, the power of thinking differently. And a lot of that just starts with surrounding yourself with different people, doing different activities that 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 sort of trigger your creativity and help. Well, it's interesting because you've got such a wide range of experience. And I look at the people that tune into this podcast, they're probably thinking, I wish I had time for a hobby. I mean, my whole focus for 10 hours a day is making sure everything's working okay. And when I'm done, I'm completely exhausted. But it sounds like having outside interest is a way to re-energize. Have you kind of found that to be the truth? Oh, oh, without a doubt. I mean, and and part of this is is what I learned at West Point, and it all comes down to, in fact, it's one of the things I actually teach in my courses, time management. It's protecting your time religiously. And, and when it's time for this, like, for instance, I have my lunchtime every day, and I, I am, you know, 
with the only exception is like if I want to have lunch with a friend of mine who's in town, but he can't meet my usual lunchtime, so I'll adjust my schedule. But like this is my lunchtime, and I don't care who you are. If you're the, if you're the general or you're like you know the head, the secretary of state, and hey Tom, I need to see you. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, that time's bad for me. How about we do this time instead? I mean, I watched superiors and, and people around me who like you know they'll go and it's like four o'clock. Like man, I haven't had, I haven't had lunch all day. Like, why not? You know and. Uh, Ambassador Newman, he was my ambassador to Afghanistan. He always took his long walks every single day. He took his walks and didn't matter what was going on. He said, this is my walk time. And he was like, you know, he used to joke around. He said, I don't care if the president calls me. I mean, this is my walking time. This, this is when I do it. And, you know, you look at Richard Branson. And, and sometimes we look at things. That's why I'm glad when you look at point to guys like with Richard Branson or like, I remember I mentioned DJ Saul, a.k.a. Uh, is, is the, uh, drawing a blank on his first name, right? John Solomon. That's right. CEO Goldman Sachs. It's like these guys make time for this stuff and they protect their time. And you look at all these successful people like Rick Branson has time to kite surf. He makes time for that. And we get so task oriented, like we're going from task to task to task. You look at any kid. We are born creative. I have people tell me, like, I don't know, I can't be as creative as you. Sure you can. You got to practice. And sometimes I sit outside, like I take my walks and I just like make shapes in the clouds, like just to help stretch my creativity muscles. Or like, you know, plan an hour of your day where it's, you're, there's no activity planned. You're just going to like, what do the thing that, that pops into your head? Maybe it's writing something. Maybe it's reading something. Do something that's just different and make time to do that. We always say, I don't have time for hobbies. And you know, it's funny. One thing, I, everyone who comes up to me, I say, okay, well, how much time do you spend watching Netflix? Oh, well, yeah, you know, I kind of been watched a show. Okay. I mean, when I go through to people, no matter how busy they think they are, I have never, I have yet to have found somebody. And even I was, you know, I was sitting there with senior executive service members in the State Department when I was, you know, a few years ago, and I was putting together my time management course. They mainly just did it for me. People are like, hey, how do you do all this? How do you have time for this? And what started out as an informal thing from a, a guy who was mentoring me, he's asking me, how do you have time to do all this stuff? And then this actually turned into a, a presentation I was giving to people. And I have never found anybody who I couldn't get an extra hour or two in their day when we just started going through things. And, you know, or the other thing I tell people is like, you know, um, like I was trying to do an online course to learn some Python coding and I signed up for this course and it'd been two weeks. I signed up. I didn't make, I didn't do anything with it. Cause I was waiting to have like an hour to a couple hours to do something. And I realized if I did five minutes a day, that's an hour and 10 minutes of time after a two week period. And at five minutes of intense focus, you're going to learn something and you're going to retain knowledge versus like 20 minutes of distracted focus. So, I mean, if you only have, some people think, well, I don't have, I only have five minutes, not enough time. Or what I do in the time management side is I'll sit there and say, huh, like, okay, I'm going to the doctor. Okay, well, there's going to be some waiting room time. And so in my day, I write out all the, like, I write out my tasks I have to do, starting with my most important thing when I'm doing that fresh in my mind and working a way down. But I also have, like, tasks off the side. Like, if I have extra time here or there, what am I going to do? Uh, and I got that from the Army, too. It's called hip pocket training. So if you're on the range and you got to close down the range because of a, a, a heat category rising too high or whatever you got to do, you just got some other things you can do like off in your hip pocket, so to speak, to just keep soldiers busy. Well, I said, okay, so if I'm going to – okay, I'm going to the doctor today. Well, if, I got, if I'm in the waiting room for 20 minutes, here are some things I can do. That way I'm not precious, I'm wasting valuable time thinking, well, what could I do with this extra time? I already know what I'm going to do with that extra time. And then I find those, those spaces of extra minutes. I started at West Point because I, I was terrible at time management. I, and part of my like 
my early years of plebe were very painful because I just didn't know how to manage skills and realizing that I can only do so many things at the A plus level and everything else is going to be B, C, or even D work because you got to have priorities and you can't give everything equal focus. And maybe you're shifting what's A plus work on any given day, but you got to have your top priorities and you got to have really, you have to be very clear what your priorities are, what you're going to give to those things and, and do that, follow a schedule, manage your time, Give yourself tight deadlines. I find that like if I will use as much time as I give myself, I mean, and, and usually the three hour version is not much different from the one hour version or the three week version is not much different from the one. So it's just a matter of taking ownership. It sounds like, and I mean, this thing about that, I'm sure there's some people right now listening to this that are sitting in the car. And if you want to grow, there's time right there, especially if you live in the part of the country you do where you can't get down to the grocery store without sitting in traffic. So, oh, yeah. you know, there's, time right there for you. Well, absolutely. You can load up a podcast or like sometimes there's, like, there's so much good information on YouTube right now. Like I will do like certain things I want to learn. I will like the night before I go to bed, I'll load up a YouTube playlist for myself. And then when I'm driving in and I'm doing my drive, I'll just hit it, hit play and it goes to the next. And I don't care about watching it, especially if it's something that doesn't require me to watch a video, like some of the house project. It's just like some learning stuff or I want to learn something interesting or maybe it's just some kind of cool thing about historic facts, whatever it is I feel like learning, just put it on the, the playlist, hit play, and just learn from that. Then it's, it's all ready to go. And that's yeah. that's now productive time. Well, I want to go back because you're a guy that's written code for machine learning to drive a car by itself. And yet you focus on leadership lessons that happened over 100 years ago. So let's talk about that. What value do you get when you go back to history? Well, the thing about history is... No matter how technology changes, there is nothing we're facing today in terms of a challenge that somebody else didn't face a long time ago. In, in fact, I have an article on Medium where I talk about um, the importance of how studying art and history is important to innovation. The, uh, what's fascinating is the first recorded instance in human history was 640 BC when, when a human being said, I wish I had some kind of machine that helped me with this. And so that when you look at all the things people have sketched out, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci sketching out flight machines, these ideas and stuff like in having robots, these are as old as human existence, the idea of having an artificial being to do work for you. And now we're finally having technology that catches up with that. And which is what the Civil War is just, I mean, one of those fascinating things is, um, you know, one, one of the things about Grant, there's been a lot more renewed folks on Grant and a lot of people looking at our Civil War leaders in different ways for a variety of reasons. But one thing I've always liked about Grant, and I, I used to talk about this in the age of email, he was very comfortable relying on technology. Lee, Lee was not. I mean, Lee kind of used the telegraph, but he still, like, if he got a telegraph, he'd, he'd get some information. He said, like, well, whatever, I'm going to ride the edge of battle and see what's going on and make some decisions. Grant, when he was working with Sherman and his junior commanders, he could receive a telegram from Sherman, visualize what's going on, and send telegram instructions back. And the Union wonder Grant was able to move a lot faster because they embraced the telegram. And what's interesting, one of the most fascinating figures of the Civil War, uh, George McClellan, he, for all, you know, he's probably the worst guy to put in front of troops. But a great lesson is where do you put people? Like, this is one, one of the things you talk about as well is, you know, your talent management piece, the HR, where do you put people? He was a genius in terms of innovative concepts. He's a guy who'd like, you know, in the military sense, he's like in charge of training and doctrine, or maybe he's leading an innovation hub. So what happened was um, when he was commander of the army, uh, he saw the power of air balloons and said, oh my God, these things would be awesome. 
But then someone goes, well, how do we get the messages? So the air balloon is up there. They see the Confederates. How do we get the information down? So he came from the railroad industry. And so he came up, he invented a way, a, a portable telegraph system to go up with the balloonists so that they could telegram back down to the general staff and say, hey, here's what I see. Um, and then when McClellan was fired from the army, that whole idea went away with it. So, I mean, this was a guy who had some fantastic ideas. So you look at like, um, you always have things like, so this is a great case of a new technology, hot air balloon, the, the, the aeronaut program, they called it. And it was killed. It died when McClellan was kicked out of the union army. And, and yet, you know, this was an, an incredible innovation that, that served a purpose. But then, you know, after Antietam, it wasn't really used anymore by the union. And yet there is some, some power. And so you look at like how you look at things like, this is almost like Nokia deciding not to do the smartphone thing. Ah, no one's going to do that. And they, 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 I was re- reading loon shots, uh, the book by Safi Bacall. And they talk about like some engineers that Nokia, they, they were kind of come up like, Hey, we could do this new kind of phone. Nah, a company killed that idea. And then Apple does it a few years later. And you so like trying to embrace a new technology, no matter what technology is, there's always like, People are going to say, here's the new way of doing things. And there's going to be someone else saying, no, no, we can't do that. And, um, or disastrous consequences. Uh, everyone looks at Pickett's charge. And from the modern standpoint, because you know we all know what machine guns are. We all know rifles, that kind of thing. So in, in this modern context, we think Pickett's charge, of course, it was a suicide mission. Why would Robert E. Lee, who a lot of people think was kind of a genius, why would he do this? Well, because he studied Napoleon. And in the days of Napoleon, like Napoleon did this tactic all the time. He attacks the right flank of an army. The arm, the opposing force moves troops from the center to reinforce that flank. Then he attacks the left flank. They take troops from the center to reinforce the left flank. Therefore, the middle is the weakest point. You punch through and sweep around, destroy the army. Lee was going to do the same thing. The problem was Lee did not keep up with new technology. He did not keep up with the new way of doing things. And what ends up happening is he leads a suicide mission because he did not stay on top of new developments. And that's the challenge today for today's leader. I spent a lot of time on this. Is like there's a lot of new technology. And if you're not staying up on this thing, your business could be irrelevant. If you're not looking at how AI and machine learning can help you, uh, my book right now, I'm, I got another book in the pipe called um, The Articles of Leadership. I used AI to help me write it in terms of AI from speech to text and then even AI compiling videos and stuff that I've done and turning those into text documents and creating a book and saving me a lot of time. I'm using AI to do that, using AI to look at my marketing and and make adjustments. And so if you're not using some of these these tools and embracing and understanding what the limits are, and one of the reasons I did this machine learning contest is, you know, I'm not necessarily going to be a machine learning programmer, but you know, it's like when I was in the army, I, ha- I learned all the jobs my soldiers did. Not that I ever do it there than they did, but by having some idea what went into doing their job, I was better able to manage the resource. So when I when I start talking to a developer, hey, I need to do an app for me, or I need a website to function a certain way, or I want a machine learning program that helps me with this, I can better articulate what it is, and I can know what goes into that kind of a thing. And so that that's one of the things. A, why I learned skills, but B, just appreciate it. And, and history is full of so many examples of like, you know, how do you get an innovative idea across? Like, I mean, that's, I think, one of the challenges. I think certainly a lot of your listeners, you're that first line supervisor, the rubber meets the road. You're going to have a lot of innovative ideas. So how do you get that to a decision maker who makes that? Because for innovation to succeed, and you look at every example of history, somebody did an idea at the bottom, 
and they got the attention of somebody in the right position at the top to then drive the change. So it's basically starts at the bottom. You get the attention of somebody at the top because if you have to go through all the middle up to the top, it's just not going to work because you're always going to have the gatekeepers. You're going to have um, – and a lot of your middle managers and – they 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 know how to succeed because they they want to succeed the way the old guys did. So they're not really ready to do the new thing because what if the new thing fails? You know they they're, they're, they become more risk averse because they want the next promotion, the next thing, that type of thing. And I think that's just you you and having these lessons in of new ideas. And then the other things I kind of talked about earlier, like the, the going back to Lee and Longstreet in the beginning of the, the this uh, interview here. You know, there's so many leadership dilemmas like. Dealing with a bad boss, Antietam. You want like anything under McClellan. Here I am accrediting McClellan as an innovator, but he was the worst commander of troops in terms of creating a, um, a hostile workplace and a, a toxic environment. He did that, and you know, learning how you tell how people dealt that situation, and even seeing the consequences of that. And I can take someone who I've coached, maybe he had a little rough around the edges, uh, and say, "Hey, listen." <laughs> This is what happened to McClellan, and it, the way you're leading your unit, you could have similar consequences. And they go, wow. And that hits home to people. They go, wow, okay, because there's a clear consequence for that. And that's the power of his. You see what happens. So, oh, yeah, you know, the union created a, a culture of uh, initiative, and then Buford uses his own initiative to basically save the Union Army by, take, by going against orders and doing a delaying tactic. Then sending help, hey, the, the Confederates are here and we need to hold this high ground. It, it, it's seeing what happens when you do things right, seeing what happens when you do things wrong, and or seeing how how close something that was success came to failure. Because sometimes when we study success, we we kind of we kind of water down the failures along the way. We we, we kind of pepper paper over some of the uh, the knife fights, the chair fights that went along the way, because we don't want to make people look bad. And the problem with that, when you have success, you got to be brutally honest of why you succeeded, why you didn't. Because, you know, um, a, a great example in Safi Bakal's book, Steve Jobs wanted to kill the movie side of Pixar when he got on board with Pixar. And the guy who was who wanted to do the movie, for, he said, no, if you do that, I'm leaving. Now, imagine if a person who didn't have what it took to, to stand up to Jobs and how he, that kind of personality he was, he might have caved. And then Pixar would have never done Toy Story. But this guy stands with Jobs says, no, not doing it. I'm doing it. Okay, fine. You do your stupid movie. And it was Toy Story and it became huge. And of course, Jobs like, oh yeah. And people today still credit Jobs as the genius behind Toy Story when he actually tried to kill that project. And so that's what the, that's so even when you study success, because it's important to know that some people sometimes people will give up because they'll say, well, you know, I'm, my idea is not getting ground. I'm going all, I'm having all kinds of resistance. Yeah. The, the person that was you 20 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, went I'm just the curious exact though. It, same it thing. sounds like to get an idea and push it up, you have to fail, you have to know the right people, you have to kind of stick with it, and eventually it happens. And then people say, wow, that was a breakthrough, that was innovation. And then the same problem happens a number of years later, and it's almost like those lessons are forgotten. And so I'm kind of thinking, uh, I was reading a book. No, I know what it was. I was watching the TV, the PBS series on Vietnam. It was like a full part series. And, and I was watching the account of uh, okay. Hamburger Hill. So here's the, the troops going up this day after day, trying to take uh -huh. this thing. And, and the, the Viet Cong are embedded in this thing. It's like this hollowed out mountain. And I thought, you know, what, 20, 30 years before, the Marines are trying to take Mount Suribachi. They're on Peleliu trying to dig the Japanese out of the caves. Did you all uh -huh. just forget every lesson you learned 
and then try this. So I guess my question is, why do people forget and then butt, you know, butt their heads against the wall and say, man, this is a real dilemma. Why do you suppose those lessons are lost? Well, you know, it's interesting. And I, and I think there's a cult, like there's so many people uh, to, to kind of paraphrase, if you've seen the movie Back to School, uh, Sam Kinison's character's history professor. And I know some of you think victory history is just some facts and figures, but I hold history sacred. And I, I kind of do that. I think people just look at it as, oh, history is just something you study just because it's some required thing and, and, and trying to showcase the valuable lessons. And I think what people are doing, like in the Army, I thought we were very good at doing the AAR, the After Action Review. What we did a very bad job is digging up, like we'd go to a national, like a training center, like Joint Readiness Training Center or National Training Center. We do an exercise. We get this. We do this great after action review. But then what we don't do is six months down the road, hey, let's pull those notes out and see where we are compared to where we were. You know, and that's one thing I do in my leadership training. I think there, there, there's got to be a follow up. Like for example, like in leadership training business, one of the things I tr- I, I try to offer and sort of insist as part of the qu- the program. I mean, also I want to give the company what they want, but I try to educate them on it. Okay, having me come and giving a two hour presentation on leadership. Okay, or you know, coaching somebody for six months. Okay, those, those are things. But what you need to have is a follow on. Like okay, let, let's have the coaching program, and then. You know, come back in a few months and see how it is. Are you still on track? Is it still working? Have you seen changes? Are you advancing? And I think, you know, just start with that. It's not just okay. It's so many times it's like okay, we did it. Check the check the box. Let's move on. And it, it, it's got to be a continuous study. And I think it goes back to the business we talked about. It's so hard to have t- when you don't have time. When you're going from task to task to task. When you're not defending your time. When you're not taking a step back and thinking, do I really need to be doing this? You don't have the opportunity. Like one time I was when I was in charge of my team. One thing I, I did when I was in um, at work, I'd say, look. One of your requirements, you know, people do what they're incentivized to do. I want you to spend 25% of your week doing something not related to your job. Read something, um, do listen to a podcast, do some wellness. I don't care what you do. 25% of your week, I want you doing something that is not task related. And they were doing that. And I found their creativity was better. I found their focus was better. I found they were thinking more strategically because they were stretching themselves and doing some of those things. I was forcing them to take the time to do some things different. And so again, when you don't have, I mean, if you don't have time to pick up a book and read something, if you don't have time to listen to a podcast, if you don't have time to do these things, you're, you can't learn. And if your company doesn't make time for training, it doesn't take, if you don't let people take sabbaticals or you don't like, you know, someone says, Hey, I want to go to this workshop. And you're thinking, you're having short term thinking like, well, gosh, if you're gone for a day, what am I supposed to do? If you don't think if you have yet to have that longer term folks to say, wow, yeah, let them go to this workshop. Let her go to this workshop. Maybe they'll learn something, bring it back to the organization. And so you got to have encouraging that. Like, I mean, in the army, we, had, we were pretty good about having a professional reading program. My battalion commander, we, we'd have like professional reading program and we'd, uh, engage and share lessons that we all get from that. And I, I think it's almost like if I was leading an organization, I'd find a way to incentivize people to do that. And if you're an individual, maybe your company's not doing it, find ways to do that because there's so much information that's out there. I mean, obviously I try to capture some of the, some of the, some of the, the biggest leadership lessons you can find. I, I, I try to capture some of the biggest things in my book. I don't capture everything, but I think I captured probably some of the most important leadership lessons somebody, a, a new leader could learn in my book, just so that, and it's only a 46-page book, so it's really easy to read. I designed it that way 
that's like people can just kind of pick it up and quickly consume it. And then even though it, it kind of goes the battle in chronological order, the way I've written the book, you could actually just open up in the middle and just read something about the lesson, even even out of order. And I designed it on purpose just so people could kind of look at different things. So it's a long way of saying you got to put the time in and you have to have a program. And certainly, I, and, and I think at a company, I encourage this, like I said, at my level, I encourage this learning enterprise. You have to create a learning culture in your organization, which incorporate, which could incorporate internal trainers, bring in outside experts. Because otherwise, you know, again, people do what they're incentivized to do. And we're not incentivized. Well, to for the, the first line supervisor who's listening to this now, and, and this is where I kind of want to wind up our conversation. Could you give us an example from, from any civil war battle of problem that happened a long time ago that a modern day supervisor is wrestling with and a solution that might help them. And I'm hoping what this does is it piques people's interest to say, number one, I want to get Tom's book. I want to take his course because I need this. Somebody's already tried and failed and succeeded. I don't want to reinvent the wheel. So take us back in time, Tom. Tell us the story. Okay. I'm going to tell you two quick stories. First one, Gettysburg, Robert E. Lee. So what happens is Brandy Station, prior to the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, Custer tried to put out a dog and pony show for Lee, put his whole unit under review and, you know, to impress Lee, show off, look at me, that type of thing. And hours later, he gets embarrassed uh, by a Michigan Union commander, George Armstrong Custer, and, he's, and, and, and Jeb Stewart's humiliated in the press. And so when he goes out to Gettysburg, um, He's more. He's supposed to be doing reconnaissance for Lee, but instead he wants to get his name in the paper. So instead of doing his primary mission, which of course Lee poorly articulated in the first place, Lee had a very poor communication style. He just goes off, does whatever he wants to, and so for the first two days of battle, Custer is nowhere to be. I mean, sorry, Custer, Jeb Stewart is nowhere to be found. Lee has no reconnaissance, no intelligence. So now, Jeb Stewart comes in. And, uh, and, you know, he's captured all these wagons from Union soldiers, that kind of thing. And he said, hey, look what I got for you. Look at all these mules and wagons. And Lee says to him, they're a burden to me now. And Lee brings them into his tent. And what do you do? You have got somebody who's been a very reliable person in battle. But he has let you down. You have probably lost the battle because this guy is not, has not been around. And so the dilemma is... How do you punish somebody? I think this is one of the hardest things for first line, first time supervisors to do. The first time you have to confront somebody who did not do their job, and you know, I think it, it's in this. And I think in this whole thing of trying to do soft skills, sometimes people confuse you know emotional intelligence with trying to be somebody's friend. But now you've got to not be the friend and give some bad news, possibly fire the person. Now, what Lee did in this situation. Um, there's no historical of what actually was said. What we do know is like basically Lee, Lee basically chewed him out and said, let's never speak of this again. And from that point, Stewart never let down Lee again. In fact, he did it as they were trying to cross the Potomac to make sure they weren't wiped out by the union following Gettysburg. Uh, um, Jeb Stewart gave a great account of himself. So, so in this case, Lee, you know, he made the decision to retain him, but there were some rumblings, people going, because, you know, Jeb Stewart had a history of Lee. Lee was superintendent. Jeb Stewart was at West Point. Uh, Jeb Stewart was his aide de camp during the um, Harper's Ferry raid uh, against Jim Brown to put down that uprising there. So they've known each other. And the thing is, here's here's the thing you have to face when you, when you look at the, what, what you're going to do to somebody. Lee, you know, a lot of people were saying like, 
oh yeah, well, I know why Jeb Stewart kept his job because you know him and Lee, they're they're buddies, they're 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 connected. Now, had that been me, I'd have been fired. Um, and, and that's a perspective. But on the other hand, you know, Jeb Stewart gave a great account of himself in the past. And then you have to look at, well, who do you have that you can replace him with? And so the thing about the leader is when you make, when you, when you make corrective behavior, you're not going to please everybody. A lot of people were very upset that, that Jeb Stewart retained his job, but Lee had a hard decision to make. And, you know, since people are going to complain anyway, the liberating thing is you can do what you want. But the thing is, Lee, I mean, what is good about that, Lee got the behavior change he needed. So what he did, it worked. And that's the important thing is you're going to have to make a hard decision and even if Lee, if Lee had fired Jeb Stewart, it relieved him. That would not have been wrong either. You know, the thing is you got to weigh all these decisions and, you, and the things to factor. You have to, so to, so to kind of take this example, here's what you have to factor when you corrective behavior. Can somebody take the criticism and learn and grow from the experience? If so, that's a thing to retain. If this is a person who doesn't accept the response, and, and I think Jeb Stewart accepted the responsibility because I think if he tried to like deflect and it's not my fault and make excuses, I think he probably would have been fired. And so you have to look at, you know, can this person learn from this? Can we move on from this? Or is it so costly? Is it going to create a problem in my organization that I have no choice but to relieve the guy? And when people saw the new Jeb Stewart, I think a lot of people that calmed people down, people, as they saw what he did following that, that discussion, people that were angry Jeb Stewart kept his job were less angry. And they're like, okay, I get it. This seemed to work. And so you have to look at, you know, how does your decision affect the entire unit? How does it affect your organization? And what's, what's ultimately best. And Lee looked at it saying, look, his talent is so good that I think I can mold him. I think I can correct him, but he can, he can pick himself up from that. But the other answer is you just might well, have to Well, I think that's powerful because- And that's the and hardest thing to I do. I don't know if anybody gets in this role wanting to be the biggest asshole they can. They, they want to do a good job. And yet sometimes you have to be firm and, and then own that decision. Right. So, I mean, I think that's wise words right there. And I think as the boss, mm -hmm. you have to be a good- reasonable judge of talent. And I think what, what matters down the line is what was the impact and the fact that you took some ownership of it. And my last quick example, also involving Lee, is communication. And one thing you got to be doing is clear on what you want. And Lee, same battle, Gettysburg, earlier in the day, this was on day one, Stonewall Jackson's killed. So the guy who replaces him is General Ewell. General Ewell's in his first job as Corps Commander, first battle. And Lee had a very genteel style of communication. And so Lee says, hey, he goes over there. Hey, as the battle's winding down, he sees Culp's Hill. And he goes, I want you to take that hill of practicable, a fancy way of saying practical. So General Ewell, he's looking there. He's first battle's corps commander. It's about three o'clock in the afternoon. You didn't fight at night in those days. He's first time in command. He's looking around. He, he kind of you know looks at his uh, brigade and division commanders and saying, hey, guys, what do you think? Like, Man, we got people all over the place. Let's assess our casualties. Let's let's redistribute ammo. Let's make the attack in the morning. That's what they decided to do. Well, when Lee doesn't see an attack happening, he's furious. Because what Lee really wanted, he wanted Ewell to take that hill at all cost. Now, Stonewall Jackson knew Lee, and he knew that Lee had this genteel. So when Lee goes, take that hill of practical, Jackson would have known, take the hill at all cost. Ewell didn't know that. Like Ewell thought, I have a decision to make. So there's two key lessons from both perspectives. One, if you're Robert E. Lee, you need to clearly state the end state. In other words, if you want the hill to be taken, explicitly say it. Don't leave any doubt. Speak so that you're not misunderstood. Second, in being part of Lee, let's just say you did intend for Ewell to make a choice based on what he saw in his world. 
you have to accept whatever decision you made. In other words, let's just say, let's pretend Lee did not have a preferred course of action at the time, but he sees no attack and now he's upset. You can't give someone a choice, then be upset because they made a choice you didn't think you'd make. If you give someone a choice, that means you have to live and die with the decision they make because you, you have entrusted them with that initiative. Otherwise, you're going to kill people from taking initiative. So you either have to clearly state your endpoint, and if you want a choice, that's fine. So find out what you want. Do you have something you want? Like in say, I want you to take that hill, or are you going to give someone a choice? You have to figure that out and make sure you're clear in articulating what you want. If you're Yule, I put more blame on Lee, the senior guy. But if you're the junior person, you think you have orders, clarify. Hey, um, if I understand you correctly, you're telling me I'm having the choice to uh, – take the hill or not based on my assessment. Is that correct? And th that's a great way of, oh, no, no, hell no. That's not what I meant. You need to take it at all costs. That's a great way to, so, so giving that brief back, hey, I understand my order to be this. Am I correct in that? And, um, or like if you're lead, a time of a play that same concept, you could say to him, hey, um, tell you what, um, circle back to me about an hour and, and, and brief me on your plan. And then when he starts saying, oh, whoa, 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 you misunderstood me. This is why. So when you, when you have those vehicles, like either as the leader, kind of have someone like, hey, circle back, let's brief me on your plan. You can catch yourself because if you didn't articulate properly, you'll find out, you'll, you'll see what they're saying. You'll, you'll understand, oh, gosh, I didn't articulate this properly. And second of all, as the, the junior priest, always clarify, like, hey, I think I have this, or this is what I want to, this is what I think you mean. Is that correct? Because, you know, if everyone, if everyone takes a job to kind of clarify what the person means, and also as a boss, I think it's also important outlining your idiosyncrasies. Idiosyncrasy, like one thing I used to tell people, because some people people would say to me, like I'd say, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And they're already doing it, and so I started learning to say to people, saying, "Hey, listen, I'm ask. Like when I ask you, what do you think? I'm just asking you a question. This is not a. This is not an implied task for you to do it. When I want you to do something, I'm going to tell you do this. When I come to you and say, "Hey, what do you think?" I'm really asking you for your opinion and I, I don't have a, I'm just trying to common sense check my idea. Or I might say, Hey, common sense check. This is what I think. Do you think this is a good idea or a bad idea? I just want to run this by you. What do you think? And I let people know that that's how I operate when I bring them on board the team. That way there's no, it minimizes the confusion. So like Lee could have said, Hey, look, I got a genteel way of speaking. This is how I do things. And, and there's, there, and let people know how you receive information. Even if you're junior, you say, Hey, look, I, I kind of work best when someone talks to me directly and says, this is you know, articulate clearly what I need. And so having both people on both sides. Well, I think if you're listening to, to this right now and, and you're thinking, boy, that's, that's a lot of responsibility. You're right. I mean, let's, let's not let it be lost that every decision that he'll make impacted people that work for him, life or death. But the other thing to think about too, unless you are uh, currently active duty and mm -hmm. one of the fighting branches of the U S military, um, it's not life or death. And and so make good decisions. You, you do have a little bit more of a safety net than maybe people had during time of war, but take the ownership and make it happen. Tom, you are a wealth of knowledge and I know you have some resources for us. And so as we kind of wind down, can you share some ways that our listeners can get a hold of you, get your books? I know you have an online course. Uh, how do we get in touch with you? Okay, um, best couple of best ways. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Tom Coyle. Uh, Adventures in Leadership's name of my company, so you can uh, you can find me there. And we got my website www.adventures the letter n 
leadership.com. And uh, you know, most of my leadership is geared toward why I started the program is mostly a youth program. But um, as I've done a youth program and parents kept saying, hey, can you come to my company and do this? So I've now kind of expanded into the executive area, that type of thing. So by the way, the website is is more youth focused, but all my other a lot of my curriculum and stuff I've been doing, doing more and more on the executive front. I just haven't um, reflected that on the website. And also I'm on Twitter and Instagram, tcoil97, another ways to get a hold of me. Uh, my book is on Amazon, uh, Leadership Lessons from the Battle of Gettysburg, and you'll find it on Amazon. I have a, uh, a Kindle copy and a paperback. And uh, actually, for those of you who uh, want to reach out to me, I got a bunch of copies here at my house. I can sign some copies. You want to order them directly through me. Again, you can contact me on LinkedIn for that or, or so, Twitter or um, Instagram. And uh, I also got on Udemy, an online version of my course there. Same title, Leadership Lessons of the Battle of Gettysburg. Udemy is an online leadership co- um, program. So yeah, LinkedIn is the best way to connect with me. Uh, message me on LinkedIn. Connect me on LinkedIn. If you've listened to the podcast, send me a note just so you know, hey, you, you heard me on the on Max podcast, um, just so I know how you found me. And yeah, right. I'd love to connect with people. Well, Tom, and, I appreciate uh, you taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with way us I today can. and share some of these great lessons from battles of long ago and also some of the exciting things you're working on. If you are listening to this podcast, I will put the links to his course inside the show notes. But uh, Tom, take care. And again, thank you for doing what you do. We really appreciate it. Hey, Mac, thanks for having me on. It was really great to connect with you again. I know it's been a while and a real honor to be on here and help your listeners. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Boss Builder Podcast, the podcast for those of you who are new to supervision, those of you in the role and struggling, and even those of you who are thinking about one day making the important transition to management. This podcast is just one resource we have. If you check out our website at greatbosstools.com, you can view some other resources we have there. We'd love to have you as part of our courses. If you're listening to this podcast on any podcast app, we'd also appreciate you taking a few moments to give us a review. Positive, of course, it really helps us out. So with that, take care and get out there and make it your goal to be the absolute best boss ever. (laughs) 